So in our Bibles, we come to Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. And when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued and put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? And Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went in to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep 
and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much indeed, Alan. Good morning, everybody. And how are you? Good. Can we have a little time of coughing together? That would just help me out. Okay. That's good. A little time of coughing. That's great. Um, Forgive me for asking this. Has anyone got any Kleenex in this place? Um, If you have, would you wander up the front? Because I could really use some. I'm really sorry to uh, make that announcement, but that would help me enormously. It's great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. And... um, Thank you for the many of, to the many of you who have been asking me about uh, whether I'll be now moving into an area of ministry in uh, leading worship at Spring Harvest. My new album is coming out soon. Look out for it. It's called Songs the Lord Rejected, and I, uh, I think you're going to really enjoy it. When I sing, people cry out to God, literally. So... Uh, There you go. Thank you to the many of you as well who are sticking post-it notes on my car. Um, You need to get out more. No, it's kind of you, except I saw them this morning and thought I got a parking ticket. And I said, Hosanna, I said. We're looking at Daniel chapter 2 and uh, chapter 7 today. By the way, thank you for coming back. Um, It's really nice of you to do that. It would have been really boring in here without you, and um, I'm grateful that you, you came back. And I told a story yesterday about dogs and cats and f- fishes and pigs on planes. Forgive my airplane stories, but it's where I spend most of my life. <clears throat> and a couple of weeks ago, I was flying somewhere, and um, I, I had a really interesting experience, which I'm not sure I handled completely well, but I, wanna, I like to tell stories, as you probably guessed, and it... it uh, gives me the opportunity to paint a little verbal parable for you as we begin to look at this material today. I got on board the flight and everyone's putting their bags and and pigs in the overhead baggage compartment. And um, uh, and this older couple, lovely older couple got on the plane and this younger couple was sitting over here. They'd already put their their bags up there and they'd been moving a few bags around. And this older gentleman put his bag in the overhead baggage compartment. And as he did, all something broke loose. I mean, it was, it was a reaction from this young woman. She, she jumped up and she shouted at this older gentleman, don't touch my bag. And the whole plane went quiet. And, and um, he turned and he said, I'm, I'm really sorry. He'd only moved her bag about two inches. He said, I'm, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. Please accept my apology. She said, don't touch my bag again. And I'm thinking, what do I do? The flight attendants, you know, standing there, not saying anything, you know, just holding her cattle prod, you know, <laughs> chicken or beef, you know. And, um, 
Anyway, then, then this younger woman's husband comes back from the loo, and I realize when he opens his mouth that they deserve each other. And she said, that, that old man, which was very disrespectful, that old man was messing with our bags. He said, how dare you? Don't you touch my bag. And I thought, what am I going to do? Because I can't, I don't want to intervene. It doesn't look good. You know, Christian leader in punch up on plane. <laughs> so I thought, what can I do? And I, I, look, I, I thought this gentleman was going to cry. I really do. He looked utterly hopeless and he said again I'm really sorry and when I saw the look of hopelessness in his eyes I thought I've got to do something so the flight attendant standing there so I said oh excuse me excuse me it's <laughs> alright just, just got out of the overhead it's alright just put it back and um I said, excuse me. She said, yes, sir. I said, can you tell me where I should put my bag? And she said, why do you ask, sir? Just up there in the overhead baggage compartment. I said, yes, I I know that. I said, that's where I would normally put it. However, the baggage police are here today. (laughs) And I said, they've just been really telling this gentleman off and they were moving bags around and he didn't do anything wrong and I'm kind of scared. <laughs> and they don't come up to me afterwards and say that wasn't very Christian. I don't know whether it was or not, but all I can tell you is the old gentleman started to giggle. <laughs> and the flight attendant started to giggle. And the young couple looked like they wanted to kill me. <laughs> But what made me mad was the sense of hopelessness that had seemed to overwhelm him. There was nothing that he could do to make it right. Hopelessness is a dangerous, toxic thing. Hope is so very important to us all. Hope, Hebrews 6.19 says, is the anchor, the anchor of the soul. It's what keeps us going through the very darkest of seasons. For this joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, Hebrews 12, 2. Hope is a member of that trinity of what we must have that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. These three remain faith, hope, and love. Hope superseded really only by love. And I want to say to us today that hope and holiness are totally linked. When you and I lose hope, we are capable of all kinds of sin. 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You see, hope and holiness are bound up together. And I want us to see today that to walk through this period of exile... Daniel had to have his hope replenished on a regular basis. Yes, he was the messenger of the Lord, delivering, if you will, prophetic insight, interpreting dreams and having some himself. But not only is he the messenger, but I suggest to you that he is also the partaker 
of the hope that is bound up in those messages. If I didn't earlier this morning walk through this Bible reading for myself, if I am not myself a member of the congregation today as well as the preacher for this moment, then there's something wrong and there's a danger that that can happen. That we become, as Christian leaders, purveyors of truth and not participators. We become, uh, if you will, tour guides, or rather travel agents rather than tour guides, booking everybody else's flight, but not actually taking it ourselves. And Daniel, his ability to hear from God about the past, the present, and the future was a very real source of hope for him. He was profoundly affected by his circumstances and indeed by his revelations. Daniel 7 and verse 15, he says, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I mentioned depression yesterday and thank you for those of you who were kind enough to come to me afterwards and let me know that that mention of depression, that some of you found that quite helpful. We've got to understand that the Bible is unafraid of that kind of reality. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul says, We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so we despaired even of life. By the way, the word pressure there in the Greek, barrio, depressed, pressed down. He says, indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. The man's not happy. Imagine getting an evangelistic prayer ministry newsletter from a, from a Christian leader that says, Greetings, friends and prayer partners. We've been utterly naffed off this month. That we felt like suicide, really. Have a great day and God bless you. Paul wrote that kind of letter. The people of God, leaders, spokespeople for God, like Daniel, like Elijah, can be irrational and erratic. Elijah runs for his life and then prays for death. In 1 Kings 19, Job is angry enough to die. Jonah chapter 4. Jonah is angry enough to die. Petulant, aggressively shaking his fists against God. Peter sulks in John 21. The list goes on and on and on. And Daniel needed to have hope replenished because he was not just some kind of static loudspeaker impersonally delivering the word of the Lord, but a human being, a collection of emotions and feelings and experiences and history. And he could be troubled. Famously, We know, don't we, that Daniel emerges from this story as a man of consistent spirituality, famously praying three times a day, Daniel 6 verse 10. But I want us to see that hope is woven into the fabric of that spirituality. He opens the windows. He faces towards Jerusalem. What is he doing? He's facing the temple. It's prescribed in 1 Kings 8. When the heavens are shut up, when there's no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you've afflicted them, then hear from heaven, forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Open the window, look towards the temple, which was in ruins at that time. He is looking at a demolition site. But you see, that's hope. When you see what is, and then when you maintain a vision of what can be. You can read about that abandonment of the temple in Ezekiel 9, 
through 11. Notice this three times a day approach. That's not a religious requirement, but he, I believe he's pacing himself to get through each day. Replenishing himself with the hope that only comes through prayer. Isn't it marvelous that there are moments in our lives when we can just whisper, as we did in the big top, I think, the other night. Help. Help. And there's something that can happen to us in that place of prayer that can replenish that wonderful sense of hope. Remember with me, before we dive into this more fully, that this was not a brief experience. This was a 70-year experience of exile. Daniel 1.21, Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus, 538 BC. The beginning of the restoration period. So Daniel got to see the beginning, the dawning of hope fulfilled. But in the meantime, he had to live in the strange land. But as Golden Gay, the commentator, says, he outlasts his conquerors. Can we pause for a moment and just remember that this Christian race is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a mini-series. It's not an episode. And I'm discovering in my own life the power of getting an attitude that is hopeful about a year ago, I took up running. I go running um, most mornings. The Lord did not lead me to go running this morning, but I go running most mornings. And uh, I've discovered this battle that, that I have with my own head. Uh, normally after the first couple of miles, my, heads, my brain cells join up. I've got two. And they, they, they say things like, this is madness. You are 48 years of age. Take a nap in the gutter. In the curbside, order a pizza and a beer. This is not good for you. I have to short circuit my brain when messages of hopelessness come through. So, what can we learn from all of this today? Let me show you where we are going. We're going we're gonna to do some foundational comments. Uh, you'll note that we're looking at two chapters today, although our reading was from one of them. We're going to take a brief look at the two dreams uh, then thirdly, we're going to have some lessons from this on how God is heard and then some lessons from what God actually said. So let's, um, let's do a little overview and make a few uh, brief comments, first of all. You've already heard from Alan um, that today our theme broadly is prophecy. Can I just say that as I address that word this morning, I'd like to use the word in the broadest sense of being a people who hear the revelation and truth of God. Rather than simply locking that up to prophecy in terms of the specific gift of the Spirit, if you will, um, obviously occurring throughout Old and New Testaments, a word from the Lord model, I'd like us to think about just simply being a people who hear and proclaim the truth of God, be that through a still small voice in our hearts, through community, through discussion and prayer, and of course uh, primarily as we come to scripture. Also, just a little technical detail, we are taking a chiastic approach um, to this today. Uh, Daniel is not completely chronological. Daniel is like a, a spiral staircase that you climb and you, you return to previous ideas. So the concepts of Daniel chapter 2 are fully mirrored 
in the vision of Daniel chapter 7. It's a Hebrew literary device. And so it's entirely appropriate that we pair those two uh, bodies of material together in order to do our study together today. Okay, let's just do a brief, really fast uh, overview. How many of you have got your Bibles, please? Let's just do a little Bible check. Um, Come on, let me just see those. That's good. Well, there's some really desperate people who are holding up their sandwiches. So, okay. All right, let's just open to Daniel 2, and, and let, let's just take a really fast um, trip um, through this. Daniel chapter 2. And um, this dream of Nebuchadnezzar's took place approximately in 604 BC. And just as I quickly take you through this, um, overview with me, just allow your eyes to run over the scriptures, because it will help perhaps for this to slot into place uh, for you. The first 13 verses of Daniel 2, the dream troubles the king. He summons his magicians. They're not able to help. He commands their mass execution, which will ultimately include Daniel and co, who were not there at the time. Verses 14 through 16, Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, he finds Daniel, tells him the bad news, and uh, Daniel goes to the king and asks for a stay of execution that he might seek God for the interpretation. Uh, verse 17 and 18, uh, Daniel uh, goes to his friends. Notice there, by the way, their Hebrew names are used on this occasion. And he says, chaps, it would be a really super idea for us to pray. Otherwise, we're not going to be breathing for very much longer. Verse 19, the dream and interpretation is revealed during the night in a vision. Uh, in verses 20 through 23, Daniel says thank you to God and gives praise to him for that revelation of the mystery. Uh, verses 24 through 45 is Daniel's meeting with the king. And verses 46 through 49, it's a startling sight of the most powerful man in the world bowing before an exiled Jew. It is amazing when you consider what's going on here. And uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're promoted to high office. Now turn over with me to Daniel 7, if you will, please. Daniel 7. And um, most theologians and commentators feel that the dreams deal with the same subject matter in different ways. But they were given and received at least 50 years apart. Uh, some say, some scholars say 60 years between them. Uh, verses 1 through 14 is the dream uh, simply of the four beasts. Uh, verses 15 through 28 is the interpretation of the dream, and the whole thing is disturbing to Daniel. It ends in verse 28. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. That gives us a really fast overview of what's going on here. Okay, now I really need you to stay with me because we're going to have to do a little bit of work, and I don't want to—I don't want you to kind of give me that glazed expression that says, you know, I'm lost already. Let's just do a little bit of work um, on this that might require our concentration. Um, more solidly than the rest of the material today. So please stay with me. Nebuchadnezzar's dream consists of this statue uh, with a head of gold, with a chest and arms of silver, with belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of clay, 
and a rock that was cut out which smashed and destroyed the feet of the statue and eventually the statue itself crumbles. Daniel's dream, chapter 7, is the four great beasts coming out of the sea. The lion with the wings as an eagle, two feet and a heart. A bear elevated on one side, eating ribs, three ribs. A leopard with four wings and four heads. And an unnamed, large and vicious beast. Very powerful with iron teeth. It destroyed, devoured, trampled its victims wherever it went. Ten horns that changed in number. And then a revelation of God coming in power to destroy that beast. The simplest interpretation is found in Daniel 7 verses 17 and 18. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. There will be four kingdoms, and then there will be the coming of a kingdom that will be eternal. Now, there is, you'll imagine, you'll know, a lot of debate in scholarly circles about what these dreams mean. But the overwhelming consensus, I have to say, is that both of these dreams, these visions, if you will, are dealing with the same thing of coming world empires, coming after Nebuchadnezzar and their historical future. Before we get to that for a few moments, we see once again that in spite of present circumstances and appearances, God is in control. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. Nebuchadnezzar's head of gold equals, parallels Daniel's lion and most believe was the current Babylonian empire ruled by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's chest and arms of silver parallels Daniel's bear and was the Medo-Persian empire that would replace Babylon's power. There are issues about the bear being raised up on its side because it represented the fact that Persians were superior to the Medes and the, and the three ribs in its mouth probably represent three main conquests of that empire, Lydia, Babylon and Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar's belly and thighs of bronze equals Daniel's leopard and represented the time of Grecian, Greek conquest and rule. Verse 6 says the leopard had six, excuse me, four wings. Alexander the Great quickly conquered. He flew, as one commentator says, to victory. And the four heads probably represented four divisions of his kingdom upon his death. And then the legs of iron and feet of clay are paralleled by Daniel's terrifying beast and stood for the Roman Empire, which has no equal historically in power and might. The ten toes of chapter 2 equal the ten horns of chapter 7. Now, I'm looking at some of you and you're saying, my goodness me, um, that is as clear as mud. Don't worry. Don't worry. I would like to suggest to you that one of the dangers comes when we either ignore these things or we are so obsessed with them that we go into endless eschatological speculation. The main message to get... The main message to get is that in spite of how it looks, God is in control. 
Now, let's think for a moment, for some minutes actually, about some lessons on how God is heard. How many of us sitting in this big top this morning would like to hear from the Lord a little more frequently than we do? Which basically is all of us. What can we learn about the way that God was heard that will help you and you and me to experience the voice of God in our lives? Let me make a few comments uh, based on all of this. First of all, let's notice, some of us will be a little shocked by this, the church doesn't have the franchise on the truth. Some of you are a little alarmed when you hear me mention that. The church doesn't have the franchise on the truth. Jesus is the truth, but that doesn't mean that he reveals that truth exclusively through the church Dallas Willard says God is always at play throughout the earth and prophetic truth is to be found in creation, in creativity, in a vast array of different sources where we might not expect to discover truth. Who is it getting the dream in Daniel chapter 2? It is Nebuchadnezzar. What does he do when he gets the dream? He, He has an occult party. He summons all of his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. Notice that language there. The writer of Daniel wants us to know. He doesn't just have a little magic circle going on here. Magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. It's Nebuchadnezzar who's getting a revelation. Sometimes we Christians can come across as being so smug. Like the only people who know anything about anything is just us. And we disenfranchise people in their own journeys. And then we get a little bit confused because suddenly someone in Hollywood presents a film like The Truman Show or Bruce Almighty. And I don't know about you, you can disagree with me entirely about this. I think that Bruce Almighty contains some powerfully prophetic messages about grace. And suddenly, Hollywood, of all places, is prophesying to the world. I think that's fantastic. I think God is having a laugh. God is having fun. Because he, the creator, is able to inspire truth from all kinds of unusual sources. When I look at a beautiful work of art, or I listen to some fabulous music that is not technically Christian music... Shall I ascribe that beauty to some devil? No. The creator God is the genius behind all of that. So it means I can look at a work of art or hear some wonderful music. And the person who wrote those notes on a piece of paper 300 years ago may have been completely anti-God, but somehow could be hijacked in their composing to bring revelation and truth as those who are moved by their music listen to it. That's why I suppose I have a bit of a problem theologically with the idea of Christian music, even of Christian books. Theologically, I'm not sure that those are appropriate designations. I think there's good music and bad music. There's good books and there are bad books. Truth is to be found sometimes in the most unusual places. Secondly, when it comes to truth, and particularly when it comes specifically to prophecy, let's insist on the real thing. 
I love the fact that Nebuchadnezzar is not going to put up with any shenanigans from his magic circle. They want to know the dream. He says, ah, I caught you boys. No, no. You tell me what my dream was and then tell me the interpretation. He's not looking for some kind of mumbo jumbo. He wants the real thing. And Daniel's really canny and clever as well. Because Daniel says in verse 27, no wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about. He's making sure everyone knows he's not had any inside information that's been given to him by somebody else. Brothers and sisters, I'm standing before you as someone who believes in the operation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit for today. I believe in prophecy I believe in the exercise of those gifts, and my life has been wonderfully messed up by prophecy. I am standing on this platform today because of prophecy, because somebody brought a now word from the Lord to me. But I want to say to us, in our pursuit of hearing the voice of God, let's be like Nebuchadnezzar. Let's insist on the real thing. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 19. When it comes to prophecy, it's an easy breeding ground for manipulation. Followers do it. Leaders do it. The leader who says, don't ask any questions about where we're going as a church. The Lord has told me and that's where we're going to go. If that's the consistent diet that you hear, the Lord is telling you, get out of that church. Because when we use prophecy in order to justify our leadership exclusively, we are beginning to forge the sociology of a cult in our churches. Let's realize that mistakes can be made in the prophetic. I've often told a story, forgive me, but uh, I love to hear these stories of these lovely mistakes that are made. It's nice. In the Old Testament, they stoned false prophets. In the New Testament, we don't do that. We just weigh the prophecy, which I'm personally quite grateful for. How about you? And I love this This episode where um, somebody stood up in a church and said, Thus says the Lord, which personally I always think is a mistake, because I think that's for us to figure out, not for you to say. And they said, um, Just as Moses led the animals from the ark two by two, so I shall lead you forward, says the Lord. They sat down and mass confusion hit the congregation, people are going, Moses? He weren't Moses, was it? Was it Moses? I'm sure it weren't Moses, was it? Was it Moses? I'm sure it weren't, was it? Wasn't it Noah? Was it Noah, wasn't it? It was no big deal. It was just a little simple mistake. But five minutes later, the person stood up again and said, Thus says the Lord, I, the Lord, am mistaken. It was Noah. Oh, do sit down and do behave. Sometimes, and I say this as a card-carrying charismatic, sometimes I am alarmed as I sit in meetings and services and mysterious prophecies that no one 
including God himself, has the remotest idea of what's going on. Quivery voice, dramatic stance. I've got a picture of a yellow jellyfish. He's tap dancing on a tin of ambrosia creamed rice. And he's whistling, I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy. And what is really spooky is that no one says, hello. You could get help for that, darling. No, no, no. This mass Gnostic confusion overwhelms us all. And we all go, hmm. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. And I want to stand up and say, excuse me, has anyone got the faintest idea what is going on? And as for you, darling, you could get, get help on the NHS. Now, of course, that would be unkind. But I need to say this to my charismatic colleagues because I'm followed around by people who come up and prophesy over me. And they, sometimes it's fantastic and it's wonderful and it's life-changing and sometimes it's utterly bizarre. And I look at them and they go, does this mean anything to you? And I'm going, yes, I need to leave now. <laughs> Goodbye forever. Be careful about personal and private prophecy. I believe in personal prophecy. I believe it's biblical that a person may receive a word from the Lord for another person. But beware the person who prophesies over you and then says, tell no one else. Because that can lock you up in a scheme of manipulation. Beware of predictive prophecy. I just heard uh, just, a, just last week of a lady who went to a meeting a service somewhere, and a prophet stood up, pointed out a person, and said, you're going to go to Uganda. Well, that can happen, but I would suggest that the Lord would have already sent a note of warning, and that it would be confirmation of the same. Is this all right to say all this stuff? Because otherwise, we're going to end up with complete and utter madness. And again, I say this, I don't want anyone to come to me afterwards or leave another note on the motor saying, you're somehow being critical of the gifts of the Spirit. If we don't do our housekeeping charismatically, we will bring discredit upon the precious gifts that God wants us to experience. And we've got to be tough about that. And that gets, as I, you know what, as I say these things, I'm not getting any flack really from you. I'm looking at all your faces. I mean... There's a bloke up the back there looking a bit alarmed, but generally you're, you're all looking quite pleased and pleasant. But this gets me into trouble when I say these things. It does. In fact, I, was, I said some of these things at one conference recently, and a chap came up to me and he said, he said, when you were speaking today, I saw a mark on your head. I said, really? What do you think it was? He said, I think it was the mark of the beast. <laughs> Aha! The mystery revealed. I said, really? He said, yes. He said, but I love you. I thought, great. He loves the beast. <laughs> now, again, you're going to get upset with me, one or two of you. He said, he said what would you like me to do? I 
I said, you know what? I'd quite like you to really just go away. I was not being unkind, but I'm not going to dignify this madness with a conversation. We have got to do our housekeeping. And this stuff does get me into trouble. There are some people who think that I'm somehow treating prophecy with contempt. I suggest to you that unchallenged, unvetted, unweighed prophecy is treating it with contempt. You're really nice, aren't you? You're thinking, oh, bless him, we'll cheer him up. He's not the beast after all. That's a relief. And if you see anything bouncing, it's just sweat. That's all. It's just... Secondly, not only should we insist on the real thing, but let's know that God is present, willing, and able to speak. I think we need an increased expectation. I want to balance that statement in a moment. Chapter 2 and verse 11, the occultic groups say, what the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. Not true. Heresy. The idea that the gods, or more specifically, God, doesn't live among humanity is wrong. That's the glory of the incarnation. But Daniel knows different. He's had an experience with the vegetables and the servants and the dreams. And he's knowing that actually God is very much involved in the detail. And would you notice the fantastic thing, the thing I love about God is his involvement, not just in the macro, but the boring little bits. I preach um, at Timberline Church in Colorado, um, 17 weekends a year. I think I said yesterday, did I tell you we had five services there and I preached the same message five times over. And I have this fear. We have about 1,500 people in each congregation and I live with this fear that I'm going to sleep in on Sunday morning. I live with, I set two clocks this morning in my chalet and my alarm clock, it is the Beelzebub 666. Has anyone else got an alarm clock like that? It's, it doesn't wake me lovingly. It doesn't go bring, bring. It's a... I set my alarm clock this morning. I set my telephone this morning. I asked the geese to stop by. And lo, they did. And I live with this fear that I'm, I'm going to sleep through and, and, and 1,500 people will be waiting for me to speak and I'm not there. And that would not be good. might be good. A few months ago, I went to bed and I did not set my telephone, I set my alarm clock. Went to sleep, had a dream that my alarm clock had died, that I'd slept through, and 1,500 people were waiting for me. I woke up in a cold sweat, looked at my alarm clock, which had died. Breathing a prayer of thanks, I put a battery into the alarm clock, went back to sleep, and wondered at the mystery 
of did God give me that dream to save my bacon? I think he did. I am offended by my own affirmation. How dare I suggest that God is interested in alarm clock batteries when we live in a world of such universal suffering and pain. The problem of the universe is not unanswered prayer. The problem is answered prayer. Any prayer that we get answered is almost a blasphemy if you look at it with that kind of convoluted logic. But the truth is that God does show up in the incidental details of our lives and I have no right or desire to prevent him from doing that. I do think sometimes God is having fun. So at church three weeks ago, it's in the loo again. And somebody's banging on the door, trying to break the door down of the loo. And I open the door, and this is the gents' loo. And there's a lady standing there. She said, oh, hello. <laughs> so there was a big lineup in the ladies, so I thought I'd come over here. I said, oh, nice to meet you. God bless you. She said, you're Jeff Lucas, aren't you? I said, yes, I am. Yes, yes. She said, it's really weird. She said, I prayed before I came here tonight. So I knew there'd be a lot of people, but I prayed that God had enabled me to have a personal moment with you. I said, well, here it is, you know. Let's have a chat and hear some paper you can write some notes on, you know. God is present, willing, and able to speak. Character's important too, moving along. Notice in verse 14 of chapter 2, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and, and tact. Can I just say that sometimes I hear this, um, this phrase going around. People talk about prophetic temperament. I don't know whether you've ever heard that phrase, or even artistic temperament. Yes, they're really gifted, they really hear from God, they're really obnoxious, but it goes with the territory. No. Daniel had the ability not only to reveal God through the prophetic, but to reveal God through his character, wisdom, and tact. And then time and prayer are important if we are going to hear from God. Would you notice that Daniel requested a stay of execution? that he might have time to consult with his friends. You know, that's an area where I'm constantly feeling challenged. Those that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. It's the waiting bit. Does anyone else find that difficult? We're living in an instant world. For some of us, our entire exercise program has been completely destroyed because now we've got a remote control for the telly. Do you remember the wonderful heady days when we used to get up from the couch, walk across to the TV? I mean, it was tough. No pain, no gain. But now you just punch a button and pew. Fantastic. I live in America. Fast everything. Fast food. I go to the bank. I don't even have to get out of my car. When I want to, when I want to pay a check in, I just, I put it in this plastic tube and press a button. Boom, it comes back. I drive out. I don't, it's instant. 
I don't want to... How many people are here? I was going to say fishermen, but it's some ladies do it. How many f- people who like fishing are here? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Don't, it's, no, it's no sin. Raise your hand. Come forward right now. Prayer team want to talk with you. I've got a friend who's into carp fishing. He goes out for three days and waits for the ugliest fish in the world. And he, and he catches a fish. And then he has a photograph taken of himself with the fish. And you go around there for dinner and he says, do you want to see me fishing photographs? You say, oh, tempt me not. <laughs> well, that's really easy. You know, you know that when you look at people's holiday snaps, you have to figure out what they are. You don't have to do that. It's, here's me and a fish. Here's me and a fish. And here's me and a fish. I don't want to wait. I like the shampoo with the conditioner combined. I didn't fully dry off this morning. I begin most mornings damp because I want to get on with the day. You didn't need to hear that information, did you? (laughs) I don't want to wait. It worries me. Again, a little little comment if I made to my charismatic friends and colleagues. Where have we got this idea that every Sunday has to be a Holy Ghost explosion? Every Sunday. Where have we got that idea? It's immaturity. It's not normative Christianity. And in the end, we'll fake it. Sometimes we just need to come together and study scripture and pray. Have a cup of tea and a rich tea biscuit. (laughs) And notice with me too that listening is a learned art. I want you to notice that Daniel's ability to hear from God was developed. In the second and fourth chapters, he's an interpreter of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. He then has a dream himself, but it's a vision in a dream of the night. Then he has a vision in a waking state in Daniel 8. And then in the final two revelations, the ecstatic state is no longer needed. You see, what I'm trying to say is, these things we learn to discern. We learn to operate in these gifts. A couple of other things before we we move into our final section. When God speaks, praise the God who speaks, not the prophets who are the postmen and women who deliver the message. King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 46, fell prostrate before Daniel, paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. Not a great idea. Mysteriously, Daniel doesn't rebuke him for that. Maybe he's picking his battles again. Can I make a little comment about that? This morning, when Alan um, shared with us the pain of the loss of his clothing to the local charity shop and then um, introduced me and said let's welcome Jeff and you gave a round of applause when in the big top this evening Tony Campolo um, very dull uninteresting (laughs) unanimated unexciting unintelligent man I say all of that just in case you're wondering because he's precisely the opposite of all of those things. Tony's an incredible man. We're so pleased he's with us this week. When Tony is welcomed, we will welcome him. We will introduce him. We will invite you to welcome him. I just want to make a little comment about that. We're not trying to make personalities of people. We're just trying to be a community of encouragement and affirmation. Every now and again I go to churches and they don't, they don't say anything when, you're, when it's your turn to get get up there you know no one knows who I am and then the the worship leader just goes like this they go and I've become a bit naughty now I kind of just go what 
we're not trying to we're not trying to build personalities, but we're just you know like when you when you applaud a little earlier, I don't know what I said, and you th- thought it was vaguely intelligent for once, so you. That's nice. Why can't we Christians be a bit more committed to niceness? And sometimes people say, oh, you're just, you're creating platform personality. No, good grief. But you know what? This is, this is the loneliest place potentially in the world. But when you know that there's a group of grinning people like you, who are kind of saying, yeah, go on. Tell us what you think God has told you. That's a community of encouragement. I just want to make that clear. And then be careful of truth twisted. There's something I noticed here that really challenged me. In Daniel 2, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. And in Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar makes an idol of gold. Gold, chapter 2, gold, chapter 3. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel says or speaks about a a dream where there's a statue. And in Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar makes a statue which is an idol. Gold, gold. Statue, statue. What's going on here? The revelation of God, which was true, is being pushed to an extreme into untruth and into idolatry. Be careful about the the twisting of truth. Be careful about those incestuous little groups that can rise up in the church where everybody of the same mind flocks together, all confirming each other's ideas. Allow others to confront you, to confront us. Let's take the last uh, eight minutes or so to think about lessons from what God said. Are you still there, God's people? Is it warm in here again? It is. And I'd take my jacket off, but I only iron the front of my shirt, so a man has standards. Before we get to these points, when I was praying about this this morning, see, here I go again. I've got the ability in the next 20 seconds to give you the impression that I'm pretty hot stuff when it comes to hearing from God. When I was, when I was praying earlier this morning, before the sun came up (laughs) having just finished Leviticus (laughs) twice (laughs) when I was praying about this this morning a thought popped into my mind you see, I don't know, maybe the Lord just says to you hello, it's me not me, I get these thoughts are you like me? I go, is that God? is that the devil? is that the flesh? is that last night's pizza? Some of you are going, this is last night's pizza, aren't you? Yeah. And um, this thought landed. And I believe God said to me this morning, check and see how many times the word mystery occurs in this Daniel passage. So I went to my computer and I typed in mystery, Daniel, eight times in this chapter. Mystery appears. Much of it is about the revelation of mystery, the interpretation of mystery. But I just need to say maybe to one person here today who right now does not understand what is going on in your life, it's okay not to know. 
I, are, I am embracing mystery more in my life now. Not mysteriousness, not emptiness, not vacuousness. But I am more willing to not know. When I first became a Christian, I had all the answers. I even, I even knew when Jesus was coming back. I got a chart from a bearded lady at the Christian bookstore. So I knew exactly. Just kidding. Just kidding. Don't, don't get upset. For any who are offended by the last statement, this is an official Spring Harvest announcement. You are listening to Stephen Gork Roger this morning. I'm much more willing to trust. I'm going to make a statement which you might find offensive. I hope you don't. I've realized my application to join the Trinity has been turned down. Someone needs to know that mystery is okay. Affirm your faith in what is right, whatever you feel. Remember I said that Daniel is a confrontational book. This revelation in in Daniel chapter 2, which by the way is not original. Hesiod, 200 years before Daniel, had compared four ages to four metals in the same order. It was a common idea that was around at the time. But now that is presented to the king um, in this dream. But would you notice that it's gold, it's silver, it's brass, it's iron, it's clay. Completely confronting the notion of earthly wisdom that we are getting better. This is a revelation of things getting worse, more unstable. I want you to just realize that in Daniel's ongoing baptism of hope, he needs to be replenished, living in this Babylonian school of weird ideas. He has to align himself with the truth, which is contrary to all of the notions that are being put around at the time. That's why sometimes I I, I wouldn't mind, I'm not an Anglican, but I wouldn't mind being an Anglican because I love the power of being part of a creedal community. Where it doesn't matter whether the worship leader hit the right notes this morning. We stand and we affirm our faith, whatever the weather. In fact, I've been, Pete Broadbent, my friend, Bishop Pete, is on the leadership team of Spring Harvest. He gave me the common prayer book and I've been using that. I I love aligning myself with those truths. It's a bit confusing. I do both bits, you know, the Lord be with you and also with you. (laughs) I change voices, you know, Lord, also with you. Affirm your faith in what is right. Secondly, really quickly, lean on the power of community. He's under threat of execution. What does he do? He tells his friends. In chapter 7, he's troubled in spirit and he tells no one. Here's a question, not a statement. Was he right to tell no one? Maybe he was. But somehow, when we recognize that we are not designed to do this alone. I've been getting into a bit of trouble recently because in my Bible notes that I've been writing... And it's God's will that you buy those in those Bible notes. I made a statement that Jesus is not all I need. I need you. How can one member of the body say to another, I have no need of you? Biblically, theologically, I can't say that I just need Jesus. I need community. I need church. Lean on the power of community. Thirdly, refuse your vision to allow your vision of God to be diminished. What we see from these dreams here is a magnificent revelation 
of a God who transcends and stands aloft history. And if you've got a pocket-sized Jesus, you'll end up with a pocket-sized faith. One of my prayers for us this week at Spring Harvest is that somehow, in, in the woof and the weave of everything that goes on, that our vision of Jesus will be enlarged. And then finally, with this, we're going to conclude. Keep your eye on eternity. You see, apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature is not just about doom and oppression. It's the rock of the kingdom that will never be destroyed, that will endure forever. Chapter 2. Chapter 7, it's the triumph of God, the ancient of days, and the cloud-riding Son of Man, the ultimate victory of God. And Somehow, I believe that we need to ask God for a greater revelation of forever. We've gone away from that. It was pie in the sky when you die. Oh, no, 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 let's just transform our communities now. And I'm totally 155%, 1,000% with what everything that Mark said last night concerning impacting and, 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 and making a difference in our communities. What a fantastic picture that was that we saw there of those, those dots distributed throughout the community. Totally, totally for that. As we do that, let's keep our eye on forever as well. And let's not lose that glimpse of the eternal realm. Final story. Have you noticed all preachers? <laughs> I don't know whether your local preachers do this. We all say this, don't we? We say, and now in conclusion, we do that to give you hope. <laughs> We've got two minutes to go, so I'm going to tell you one last little story as we think, wrap all this up, thinking about hope and revelation, inspiration from God. A few years ago, a good friend of ours, young man, Jory, age 12, was hit by a truck and killed instantly in Colorado Springs. The whole thing was very strange to me. In the middle of the night, I woke up wondering what I would say to parents whose child had been killed. Went back to sleep, prayed for a few moments. Three hours later, the phone rang with the news that a child had been killed son of our friends. Don't understand that unfolding really. We, they asked us to go to the, to fly out to the States. We were here at the time. Would you fly out and be with us? Would you speak at the funeral? And we went out there and the morning of the funeral, we went for breakfast together. And my wife Kay was uh, sitting beside me and John, Jory's father, looked at Kay and he said, Kay, has the Lord said anything to you about Jory's death? And I panicked inside. I thought, I really hope not. Because that's not a moment to make a mistake, is it? And I'm, I'm, frankly, I'm, I'm trying to kick Kay under the table. I said, don't say anything. This is pastorally scary. And Kay, to my great horror, said, yes, John, the Lord did speak to me about it about it this morning. She said, but I feel a little bit weird about saying this to you. She, he said, just tell us what you feel you heard from the Lord. And Kay said, John, Jory is dancing with the angels. And Jesus wanted you just to know that. And John started to cry. And he said, Kay, there's two things you don't know about our son. The first is, 
that Jory loved to dance. It was his favorite thing to do. He was always jigging around the house. There was always loud music on. So much so that when we went to the funeral home earlier this morning, I leaned over the body of my son. I kissed his cheek. And my last words to him were, dance, Jory, dance. And now we've come for breakfast. And you tell me, with hesitation, but I'm so glad to hear it. Jesus says, he is dancing with the angels. And suddenly, over pancakes and eggs, we were reminded again that it's not just about the here and now, but our hope was replenished as we realized that the horizon of forever stretches before us. We sang at the beginning, Jesus reigns over all. And because he does, soon, all of us, all of us, will all be dancing with him too.